All right, turn to Luke chapter 4. We're continuing our, our, our series, Good News. Uh, and I want to start with a, a, a story. <clears throat> um, after my wife and I uh, had gotten married, we had taken a, a handful of trips, um, and, and we just saw these as opportunities to kind of lay the foundation for our marriage. One, uh, we went to, to Libya in the middle of the Arab Spring and war to, to go minister to people. Uh, that was a wild trip. But another one we took was, we were living in Texas at the time, uh, was to the border of Texas and Mexico. And uh, we, we had the opportunity, sorry, <coughs> we we took a couple of weeks, our church had taken a mission trip down there, and we got to see God do some incredible stuff. And so my wife and I stayed for a couple more weeks and led a team down there. Uh, we did some, some teaching and equipping of other churches in the area. But what we got to do is we got to live for a couple of weeks in one of the poorest zip codes uh, in, in America. And um, essentially got to serve people, got to bring people to Jesus, but then begin churches that meet in people's homes. And uh, it was a, uh, a powerful time for us. I mean, so a lot of these people were, were precious, amazing people who became our friends. Many of them were, were migrant workers. Many of their homes um, were makeshift homes, um, kind of in, in a similar zip code and neighborhood together. And, and two things stood out to me from this trip. Uh, uh, number one, I mean, we went to give out, but I feel like we left more filled. Uh, these were actually some of the most generous people I've ever met in my whole life. Uh, they were generous with their love. They opened their homes to us. I remember having dinner uh, one evening. This family just invited us in, gave us dinner. Uh, like I said, they had a somewhat makeshift home. And I remember my wife got cold and this teenage girl comes out and gives my wife her sweatshirt. And is like, I want you to keep this. And again, this is a family that didn't have much. And I'm like, oh, like I just felt like so humbled by the generosity of these beautiful people who had, had become our friends. Man, I feel like we went to poor, but we were the ones in many ways that got blessed and, and filled more than I would have expected. And then secondly, something that stood out to me on this trip is that God loves to move powerfully among those who are poor disadvantaged. I just, we, we, I remember we would go to homes and they would bring us anyone that's sick in the home and it was almost verbatim, anyone we prayed for got healed physically, supernaturally. And just, I remember one kid, eight-year-old kid, he couldn't run because he had such bad asthma. We pray for him. I mean, they had a whole area of their house was like inhaler boxes everywhere. We pray for him. He gets instantly healed and then he's running around, you know, uh, completely healed. Their family gives their life to Jesus. And this kid is like, hey, I have some other people I think we should go tell this story to about Jesus. So he starts taking us to his friends and their families, and they start meeting Jesus. And then he says, this guy over here, is, he's actually one of the drug dealers in the area. We're going to share with him. He gives his life to Jesus. And this eight-year-old is leading us around. People are getting healed. People are getting saved. We're starting these churches in people's homes. And man, I experienced God in a couple weeks there in a way that I rarely experienced. If you want to experience God, spend time with those uh, who 
are vulnerable because God's heart is bent towards those in need or those vulnerable. It was an incredible week. Um, you know, as we go to our text in Luke chapter 4, um, this is Jesus introducing his, his kind of stated mission. Joel talked about that last week, that this is what Jesus came to do. And he begins his ministry by reading out of Isaiah 61 and, and, and quoting Isaiah 61 and stating, hey, this is what I'm here for, what I came to do. And so I want to look at that. I actually want to zip specifically to verse 18 and 19. Um, on, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus stands up in the synagogue, he, re, he unrolls the scroll and he reads this, and I want to read verse 18 and 19 together. Here we go, all one voice. Jesus said this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of the sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And, um, you know, Jesus here is, is making a statement by reading Isaiah 61, this prophecy of his ministry, and what you'll see here in this text is that at the center of Jesus' heart and mission are those who are either poor or vulnerable. If you look, the poor, the captives, the blind, who in that day were not only just physically blind, but they would be marginalized in society and without opportunity because they often didn't have the care systems that we have. The oppressed, at the core of Jesus' ministry, were those who were either disadvantaged or poor or marginalized. Jesus got up and said, hey, this is, this is what I'm here to do. And in the same way as we'll get to, Jesus calls us to do the same because I believe what breaks his heart ought to break our hearts if he's our Lord. And so we see this throughout Jesus' ministry. If it's not just here, in fact, uh, we see this being a hallmark of Jesus' ministry. When Jesus asked, um, hey, are you the Savior? What Jesus responds and kind of says, hey, here's the hallmarks of my ministry. In Matthew 11, Jesus says this to John the Baptist. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed are the one who not offend by me. This is what Jesus said. Hey, these are the marks of my ministry. All these things are happening. And again, at the, at the core of that are those who are marginalized. And if you kind of step back, we see that as, as, as one author, Tim Keller, puts it. Um, in a sense, when Jesus came to earth, he came and moved in with the poor. Jesus was raised in a poor town called Nazareth. He, um, he worked a job like, like the average person. He wasn't a business elite. Uh, he worked hard labor uh, like, like many of us average people. And, and speaking of him in, in uh, coming into humanity, Paul said this, that he became poor for our sake, not just by growing up in Nazareth, but he became poor by becoming a human. God becoming human is a picture of God moving in to those in need. 
And we see this throughout Jesus' ministry. Jesus ate with those who were socially ostracized. He healed a sick woman who spent all her money on medical treatments. He invited a rich man to sell his stuff and give to the poor. He raised the son of a poor widow uh, he, he, from the dead. He showed great respect to an moral woman who was a social outcast, right? So it wasn't just to the financially poor, but also to the vulnerable. Um, he, he resisted the sexism of his day by speaking with a woman in public, uh, which is not something that men did in that day, and empowered her to be the first kind of revivalist evangelist, the woman at the well. Um, he, he addressed racism of his day by making um, a, a Samaritan, who were the hated people from the Jewish people that day, one of the hero of one of the most memorable Bible stories. He healed lepers who had no future in society and, and gave them a future and a hope. He prioritized children despite the disciples' belief that they weren't worth Jesus' time. And he, is a, he and the apostles had a common fund from which they gave to the, those in need. And so Jesus clearly prioritized not only them. You see Jesus, you know, calling Matthew a tax collector who were some of the richest people in his day. So Jesus' ministry wasn't only to the poor and the marginalized, but it was at the center of his heart. Now, this isn't just a Jesus thing. This is actually something we see as a theme from Genesis to Revelation in Scripture. Scriptures are full of the importance of, of care for the widow and the orphan, the immigrant, the poor. God raised up prophets uh, throughout the Old Testament to challenge believers when they weren't doing that. And some of God's greatest judgments came against God's people when they failed to care for those who were marginalized. And then between believers, we see this incredible thing in the Old Testament where uh, they had a system. Now, Israel was a nation state, and so it was like a nation of believers, which is totally different from, from our times we live in now. But they had a system set up that essentially would almost virtually eliminate any permanent underclass. So they allowed gleaning from the poor and the immigrant could glean off the corners of people's fields to be fed. They also had uh, rules in place that protected from overgleaning. Uh, every three years, some of the tithe was given uh, to the poor and the needy. Uh, and then every seven and 49 years was the Sabbath and Jubilee years where, where people um, were were, were slaves, they, slavery then was different than indentured, uh, it was more of an indentured servitude, were set free, and on top of that, uh, land would go back to its original landowners every 49 years. So it, it, it kind of set captives free, literally, uh, by, by um, being a, a year of abundance financially. Now, let me kind of step back. When we start talking about poor, uh, uh, ministering to the poor, or caring for those in need, or matters of justice, right, even that word justice, narratives start to come in our head, right, about how we should do this as a church, and how we Christians should do it, or engage it, or not engage it, or whatever, right, we, we kind of have these narratives that come up in our head, and so um, I, I want to speak to that for a minute, because of the time we're living in, and also, um, just acknowledge and maybe kind of by, by asking the question, why do people end up in 
poverty because that's some of what the debate takes on over and what does that mean for us and, and why is Jesus necessary and not just good works, okay? So, so why, do, why do people end up in poverty? And so I think if we're just to kind of ask the, the, the pulse of the culture, I think we have group A and group B on why people end up in poverty. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Okay, group A, uh, they might say poverty exists because people are lazy and sinful, right? And so you know a news station or two that makes us disciples of that, right? And they'd say, hey, uh, people, poverty exists because people are lazy, period. And there's maybe a few exceptions, but people are lazy, right? And so this news station, their disciples say that. Now group B would say, Poverty, sure, maybe a few people are lazy in there, but really poverty exists because of unjust systems in society. And there's a new station or two or a group of people that would say, hey, well, this is, and they got their group of disciples, right? And so what happens, right, is then circumstances come up with precious people who find themselves in challenging situations. And what happens is, these group A and group A, or group, group A and group B, we put these people into formulas. And we say, well, let me tell you why you're in poverty. And let me tell you why you're going through a hard time. And then the other group comes up, no, 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 let me tell you why they're in poverty. And meanwhile, these poor, uh, or, or these, these precious people who are maybe going through a hard time are stuck in the middle of a culture war and being used as pawns to kind of meet the narrative. But the reality is, life is not a formula. The economy is not a formula. The world is not a formula, right? And so when we try and put formulas to fix the problems going on in our world, not only is it not working overall, although sure, there's some good things happening, right, in the midst of that, but people end up becoming kind of political pawns. And so, When I look at scripture, I see maybe a more robust approach to why people would um, end up in a a hard situation. And this is kind of my summary taken from a guy named Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice. Uh, One reason people end up uh, in in a place of, of poverty would be unjust systems or sin. And we see this, this is all throughout the times of scripture, like I was saying, not only if, if you're sick, uh, you, um, you would have to be kind of, um, you, you maybe wouldn't have job opportunities, but often put out of society. And so there would be systems that were often in place, right? Or even, for example, when Jesus came and turned over tables, they were making people essentially pay money to worship without going into all the explanation of it. And so Jesus was angry because there was an unjust system being put into place that only allowed the rich to worship. And so Jesus was ticked off and he came and flipped over tables because the good news is for everyone, right? And so just for example, in Fullerton, redlining existed until the early 60s. We think, oh, this is the South, you know, whatever. Redlining existed until the early 60s. Literally, people who are not white till we got pushed south of the train tracks in Fullerton until the early 60s. And what that creates, you see, is a situation where generational wealth is created or generational poverty is exacerbated. 
So this is like live time. This is not that, like the 60s is not that long ago, right? Um, okay, a second reason, unfortunate events. Maybe someone has a health breakdown in a disaster. They're all of a sudden unable to work, right? Or maybe they have a mental health breakdown. Maybe someone, their, their caregiver or financial provider died, right? Or maybe their parent left. I, I don't know. It could be a handful of, of events, unfortunate events. This could be just, man, the world's hard, or it could be someone else's sin that disproportionately affected uh, us. And third reason people end up here is maybe a, a lack of personal responsibility. That is a factor that comes up, or maybe even the, the result of of one of our sins. Sometimes we sin, and the consequences of our sin, whether rich or poor, results in financial hardship, right? Um, and so reality is, in a real world with real lives, if you've worked with people at all, which all of you have, it's likely a combination of factors, right? So for example, someone didn't get set up well. Maybe their family didn't have money growing up. Maybe they didn't see parents working or, or didn't have an opportunity to go to school or whatever. And so maybe they didn't get set up well. They didn't know how to make good financial decisions. And then on top of that, an unfortunate event hits them. And they don't have the financial wherewithal to uh, take care of the problem like many of us would, Right? And maybe they didn't learn the skills to go get the right job. And so, uh, again, you see that it's probably a whole uh, range of factors. But let me just kind of step back and say, at the core of all these things, whether it's one, two, or three of the reasons why I mentioned, right? Someone has screwed up broken world because it's called sin. Right? So... Behind unjust systems is a sin of greed, right? Behind some of these things is, is a lie from the enemy that I'm not good enough and I'm not qualified enough. And so it keeps us in a, a mindset of poverty, right? So, so we live in a broken and hurting world and, and behind whatever the reasons is this thing called sin in a broken world, whether it's our sin or someone else's sin or someone generations ago, sin or family of origin, sin. We got this thing called sin. And so, so Jesus, the good news here, is that Jesus came to destroy the power of sin. Now, often when we as Christians hear that, we think, oh, like, that means I'm forgiven, and I go to church, right? No, 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 it's better than just that. That's good, but it's better than that. Jesus, this whole Luke chapter 4, what Jesus, he didn't just come and say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to die on a cross so you could be forgiven and go to heaven, no, no, you see what Jesus is doing. He came to the earth to not only destroy the power of sin, but then his ministry undoes the effects of sin. Jesus' ministry sets those who are in bondage to sin free. Jesus' ministry lifts up those who are poor and gives them opportunities and honor and dignity and worth. Jesus' ministry empowered the vulnerable of society. Jesus came to not only forgive us of sin, but to undo the effects of sin. And that's good news for the poor in our lives. It's good news for the vulnerable in our lives, but it's also good news for us, and I'm about to tell you why. 
Well, let me start by saying that Jesus has called us to follow in his footsteps. Right? God wants to break our hearts with the things that break his heart. We can't say, Jesus, I love you, but I don't care about what you care about. Right? <laughs> we can't say, man, I'm just going to go worship and be kind of a, a good church Christian. No, if, if we're going to lift up Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to follow you, that means the things that are on his heart break our heart, and it means that we learn to do the things that he does. And so following Jesus looks like not only a proclamation of good news to those around us, but a demonstration of good news to those around us. That our lives demonstrate that God came to destroy the power of sin and to bring good news, that we are literally are the good news as we proclaim the good news. Jesus called us to do that. He said, um, again, sell what you have, give to the poor. He said, blessed are the poor, for there's the kingdom of God. He said in Luke 14, when you throw a, a, a dinner or a party, don't just invite your friends. He said, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, right? Invite those that cannot repay you. Man, that's, that's challenging. That's uncomfortable, right? Because that might mess up my plans, right? Matthew 25, Jesus said this. He said, um, he said hey, he, he said that at the end of the, the age, you know, people are going to be separated into two categories. Essentially, those who cared for the poor and didn't. That's a challenging passage. And he's going to say, hey, thank you because when... when um, when I was a stranger, you welcomed me. When I was naked, you gave me clothing. When I was in prison, you came to visit me. When I was hungry, you gave me food. And it's going to say, well, when did I do that? When, when, when did I visit you, Jesus? You weren't like in prison, like, oh, hey, Jesus just got put up for 10 years. You know, so I got to go visit him. No, no, people are going to say, well, when did I visit you? He said, what you did to the least of you, you've done to me, Jesus said. So, we can't love Jesus and ignore the vulnerable in our lives. Is it how we treat the vulnerable in our lives is a key indicator of the state of our hearts. And, and that's not easy, right? I'm, I'm like continually like, oh, Lord, I am so selfish. I'm so impatient. I'm so immature in so many ways. But I want to just take the last chunk of our time together here and, and look at one passage in specific, one story that you'll be familiar with uh, in Luke chapter 10 where, where Jesus paints a picture of, of how we go about that. Luke chapter 10 um, Jesus had been asked, what are the most important commandments? He said, love your God, with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, love your neighbor. And, and then the guy says, well, who's my neighbor? Trying to justify himself. Jesus said this, Luke chapter 10, this, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. He stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. 
And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, now go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. So so if we're honest, right, if I'm honest, I'm often more like the priest and Levite, right? It's it's not always convenient, right, to, to care for those in need or those vulnerable around us. And then on top of, we've got all these political narratives and shoulds and should nots and shaming in our head going on. And so that's why we want to go back to the words of Jesus, right? And so I want to ask the question, when we come to the how in this passage, what keeps us from, from loving those in need around us? Why don't you stop and think about that? I'd propose a couple things. One, it's, uh, it's really inconvenient. <laughs> I never felt inconvenience. You've been approached by someone on a street corner or it's inconvenient to see someone down and out in your car. It's just like uncomfortable. You're like, oh, that, like they clearly have some health issues. They clearly, like that's really uncomfortable. It's inconvenient, and um, man, I can, I can tend to be like them. Like, well, I got I got a really important spiritual meeting to go to, right? And they could have thought, okay, well, right, um, this person's bloody. I, I can't get them on my my horse or my donkey. It's gonna mess up. I got to go to a meeting. I don't have time to deal with a bloody person and then get clean and all that, right? So, like, yeah, that could be one of the many reasons why they kept going. Another reason that we are kept from from loving the poor, the, the narratives that go in our head. Maybe this came from watching the news or some news commentary or political commentary. But maybe the narratives in our head came from loving someone in need before and getting burned. I've extended myself. I took someone into my house years ago, and they stole some of my stuff. Man, and that just perpetuated narrative that I wanted to believe out of my comfort of this is always going to happen when I extend myself and give myself to those in need. This guy was trying to come off drugs. I was helping him out. He took $200 of mine and went and bought drugs, and then came back and made an excuse for it, you know? That hurt. You know, you've probably been taken advantage of in different ways as well. And the narrative that wants to come into our head is, this is always going to happen because you just can't trust people because it's just not worth it, right? <clears throat> and so I'm sure the, the priest and the Levite probably had some narratives going on in their, in their heads, right? Like, hey, well, this guy's bloody. He, he was probably drunk. It's probably his fault. He was probably drunk, picked a fight with someone in the road. He couldn't hack a good fight, and so he got beat up. And now it's his fault. He shouldn't have done that. He stepped out. Or, or, or you know, hey, well, they made a choice to get addicted to that thing, so they should have to deal with the consequences of it, right? Or uh, he likes sitting around in his blood. He, he must like that, just kind of the, the he's a freeloader. He's just out here, you know, all the crazy narratives we get. Or, or maybe it's just a poverty mindset that I only have so much time, I'm already stressed out. 
<laughs> right? I already don't have something called margin in my life. I definitely don't have financial margin in my life. So if I give my time and money here, guess what? I'm going to go bankrupt. And I'm going to be on the streets just like this person or whatever, right? We go into these crazy stories. We get in our own poverty mindset. But I think at the core of what would maybe keep us from loving those in need is not seeing our own poverty. And what I'm talking about is our own spiritual poverty. Jesus said this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What that literally means uh, in the, the Greek concept is blessed are those who realize they're spiritually bankrupt. Who realize it's not like, oh, I'm going to do a bunch of good things and clean up my act and come to church and put on the Christian face and then God will love me and I'll be accepted by community. No, no, no. Blessed are those who realize that apart from God, they don't have anything to offer spiritually. Blessed are those who realize, man, I've screwed up and sinned enough of my life and have tried it and it's not worked out that I am desperate for the mercy and the grace of God. Jesus said, blessed is that person. You see, we love, especially as Americans, to read these stories and I'm like, I'm the, I'm the good Samaritan. I'm the hero. I'm not going to be more like him. Like, you know, just, they just needed me there, you know? <laughs> Everything would have been better, right? Before we can be a good Samaritan, we need to be the person broke down on the side of the road. On the side of the road, spiritually, we, we've all, this is a picture of us on the side of the road, spiritually. We've all sinned. We've all, nothing we can do can earn our way back. God is holy. He's loving, but he's perfect. Nothing we can do, no amount of going to church can earn your way out of shame of your sin and into God's favor. You know how God gives favor? Radical generosity. And this good Samaritan is not first you and me. This good Samaritan is first Jesus. And that's why this story is radical because the Jews at the time hated the Samaritans. And Jesus lifts up a Samaritan as a picture of his ministry and a picture of how God is to us in our brokenness. You see, until we realize that we have nothing to offer God, we're not going to experience the radical generosity of God. But it's at my lowest moments where I've been stuck in my sin or stuck in whatever and I had nothing to offer, and I came vulnerable as I am, broke down, I experienced the most radical generosity of God's grace. And so when we realize we're spiritually impoverished, we encounter the generosity of God. And guess what that does to our souls? It makes us generous people. Not because we have a lot, but because we've experienced generosity. So you might not have grown up in a generous family. You might not have grown up with much, but you've got a God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and is generous. And when we experience his generosity, it transforms us to be generous people. Tim Keller, uh, in his, his book, a Generous Justice, he said, often those who struggle with generosity the most are those who are middle class in spirit. Those who think, ah, I'm kind of messed up, but 
I'm pretty good. Like, I'm not as bad as the people on that row and that row and that person over there, whatever. I'm, I'm not that bad, right? And I, I spent a lot of time with God, and so I kind of am pretty spiritual. He said, those are the people that struggle with generosity the most. The people that are the most generous realize they're spiritually impoverished. And that's the beauty of the good news. Is Jesus loving and ministering to the poor is not only good news for those who are vulnerable or physically poor, it's good news for all of us because that good news transforms us to be generous people. And so as we wrap up a couple things we can learn from the Samaritan as we talk about how can we, how can we start to be more like Jesus and follow in his footsteps. Number one, the Samaritan saw him. The Samaritan saw him. Now, you know, surely the other one saw him. He was on the road. They had to like walk over him uncomfortably. Do you know you can see people without seeing people? You know what I'm talking about? Like, I don't like to see people because it means that sometimes there's something I need to do about that, right? Like sometimes I'm at the corner and someone has a need and, and I'm like, I don't, don't look at them because if I look at them, they're going to see me and then they're going to realize I'm not generous and I feel bad and I stink as a person, right? Right? So, so we do this thing where I'm like, I'm looking the other way at the stoplight. I'm going to fiddle with my phone over here, right? You know what I'm talking about? But they saw him. You know, I, I had the opportunity to grow up. My, my dad worked downtown Minneapolis. I'm from Minnesota. And so whenever I went with him, I got to see him stop for every person that has some money and give. Now, we're not perfect family. We've got plenty of our own issues. But I got to see my dad's generosity there. And what I saw was he treated every person like a human. You know that term, Imago Dei? It means to be made in the image of God. That's what I got to see my dad do. Seeing people means we see them made in the image of God. So when someone is in need on the side of the road, we say, this is someone's daughter or son. This is a child of God, and this is in, in, in our world around us. We look at, or, or, or when, we, when we see someone who's vulnerable in, in, in our world around us, we look at them and can say, and I can empathize because they're a human being who have hopes and longings and desires and disappointments just like me. When I, when I see someone who's, who's uh, homeless or in need, I think, man, someone raised this kid. Someone fed this kid every day. And, man, they're here. I, 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 I have compassion when I see people in the image of God. And so that's why the Bible says the eye is the lamp of the body right? How we see with our eye will determine our heart posture, okay? All right, so he, he saw them. Number two, it says the Samaritan moved towards them. Moved towards them, right? So when I think of what that looked like, the Samaritan was probably on a donkey. It was an animal, it said, probably a donkey. He had to stop, pulled the animal up to the guy, probably got off and, and bent down. He, he moved towards the person and bent down off his animal and, and got off his high place and that place of opportunity or privilege or whatever they had, and he bent down and got into that other person's world with empathy because he saw them in the image of God. And, um, yeah, we get, a, we get a move towards people. And I, I grew up middle 
upper class and in a pretty big bubble. Uh, and so when I went to college, I just felt convicted reading these passages. So I, I, I moved in next to the projects for a year. And uh, some friends and I, we got to know um, people in the neighborhood. We got to know some, we took in a homeless person. We got to know some of the Crips and Bloods. We got to know, we, we, we met all the people in the community. We had them over. We loved them. And man, it was uncomfortable for my white upper middle class guy self, you know. But it transformed my heart. Because these people were often more generous than the people I grew up with. <laughs> And they had us over to their places. They cooked us food. Uh, and, and what it did, it, it flipped my paradigm, but it took me moving towards the situation. And so that's an extreme example, but it literally just starts by looking around. So often we go into a room and we're thinking, what are people thinking of me? And what am I, am I doing okay? And how do I measure up with other people? What if we forgot about that for a minute and looked around and saw the person who is most vulnerable in the, in the room and moved towards them? What if we found the outsider and went towards them? Just simple, we can do this in any room, any work environment, any place we walk into. What if we did that, right? Uh, moving towards people. I'm so proud of uh, Brian and Jen Neese's life group. They're making uh, bags for, for the homeless of just supplies and goods and care. So they're prepared to move towards people when they encounter it. I love that they're doing that this next month. And lastly, what, what uh, the Samaritan did is he, he generously made a way. Um, he generously made a way. We, you know, we, we can't do everything we want, but we can do something. He generously made a way. He, he, two, two denarii, that's uh, two days wages. Two days, he, so he's like, man, I'm gonna give two days of my wage to just care for this person. He made a way. That might look like a one-time thing we do for someone, right, of just saying, hey, I'm, I'm gonna bless this person as I go. Or it might look like some of us staking ourselves next to someone in need who went through crisis or went through a hard time and saying, we're going to make a way until you get out of this. Of course, you have your own responsibility in this, but we're going to make a way because you're financially stuck or you're unable to get there. And, and man, that's what Jesus does with us. And so whether it's one simple thing we do or actually staking ourselves next to people to make a way, um, we all can do something. And that often starts with even raising our voice for, uh, to be a caregiver advocate for those in need. Um, yeah, and, and I just want to acknowledge that being generous is uncomfortable. I remember we were about to be married. We got a house, and so I was living there before my wife moved in because we were waiting until we got married. And so uh, this guy showed up at my door. It was me by myself. It was one in the morning, pounding the door. It's pouring out. And he's like, hey, I'm freezing. So I take him in. It's one in the morning. He's got a blanket. I put him in the dryer. I put it in the dryer because it's soaking. There's urine all. I didn't know there's urine all over the blanket. So the whole house smells like urine. I'm about to be married, you know. And so my wife comes there. My soon-to-be wife comes there the next day. She's like, what happened in here? You know, I was like, well, I, you know, I dried this guy's blanket. I didn't know there's pee all over it. And I got to care for him. And you took him in for the night or whatever. And it's just like, our, our dryer may smell like urine for the first little bit of our marriage. We'll try and figure this out, how to clean it. But like, it's just not convenient to be generous, right? Um, so I've definitely failed this test plenty of times, but we all can do something. So here's what I want to do to respond. I want to invite us to stand um, and just open our hearts 
to what God wants to do. I think, first of all, I just want to acknowledge, I think many times we, we think as Christians that there is a small group of people who are called to ministry to the poor. And the rest of us, uh, we do the comfortable stuff, right? Uh, and while I do think there are some people that are maybe called vocationally uh, to that, if we're Jesus followers, this is for all of us. And so I want to invite you not to kind of say, oh, that was a good theological message that I agree to. But I want to let us get uncomfortable. I want to invite us to all be uncomfortable by this word. I know it wasn't the most comfortable word today. Uh, Because we want to be Jesus people, right? Like what if everyone in this room went out and did something this week? Like what kind of stories would we have if everyone in this room went and did something this week? What kind of people could we help get off the streets? What kind of people could we help? What, what person who, uh, you know, is an outsider would feel like an insider? It excites me. But as we respond, you know, I think um, God is wanting to, to, to pour out his anointing on us and move. And so I want to ask you the question, what would keep you from doing that this week? What would keep you from seeing someone and moving towards them this week. I think for some of us, it's maybe because we're cold in our heart. I've been there before. And I want to invite you, if that's you, to get low before Jesus right now and embrace your spiritual poverty. Because you and I, were no better than the person who's out there and in need. So for some of us, if we're feeling cold, we need to get low so that our heart gets soft. And some of us, we're, we're convicted. I was convicted this week, and, and I want to invite us to a place to surrender and say, Jesus, I, I, um, Lord, how would it be uncomfortable again? Some of us, we need to surrender the narratives in our head that are keeping us to be self-protecting people that are just looking out for ourselves. We need to d- ditch some of those narratives. And so for those of us who are just embracing our spiritual poverty, the good news for you is God loves you and you get a whole lot of grace if you'll embrace the fact that you need a Savior. And for some of you today, maybe it's your first day calling upon Jesus and asking him to save you. And that's good news for you today is that you can leave here with your sins forgiven. You can leave here as a new person. And if you need to be reminded of that, you've done that before, man, good news is you can embrace your spiritual poverty and find him again. And for the rest of us, I want to I want to invite us to maybe even just open our hands as just a posture of not only surrender, just God, here I am. Would you move through me this week? Would you break my heart for what breaks your heart? And so, Jesus, we look at you right now, and we we just say, Jesus, if this is if this is who you are, Lord, make us more like that. this isn't a feel-good message today, but Lord, it's it's good news to those who need it. And Lord, help us like you to be uncomfortable that others may have life. And so Lord, even right now, would you bring people to mind 
would you bring circumstances to mind? For those in our lives that are marginalized, those in our lives that are outsiders, those in our lives that are hurting, 